Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker. Uh, and we've got uh, another news show for you this week, as promised. I uh, had a lot to catch up on with some of the interviews we had, had to get, and uh, tried to catch some of it last week, and too much to cover in one episode, so I've got some more of this episode. I'm hoping that we'll have some interviews coming up soon, but with the holidays, it's getting kind of hard to schedule, so we may have some more new shows before the end of the year. Uh, I am working on several other interviews, but <laughs> we'll have to wait and see when those come in. So today I've got a few topics to cover. We're going to talk about how uh, thousands of Disney Plus accounts were hacked on the very first day and what that means for you, even if you don't have a Disney account. We're going to talk about a massive data breach. I would have to bet it's one of the biggest ever that contained over a billion records. I mean, that's just crazy. So we'll we'll talk about that. PayPal has decided to acquire uh, what a rewards platform is the fancy word for it called Honey. And if you haven't heard of that, I'll tell you a little bit about that. But they're spending $4 billion on it, so they obviously think it's worth it. And I'll tell you why I think that is. If you use Avast or AVG antivirus, uh, you're definitely going to listen to this. Their browser extensions, which you may not have even realized you have installed, have been found to be spying on people, uh, Chrome and Firefox users in particular. So we'll talk about that. And finally, we'll talk about how identity thieves are turning to regular old snail mail uh, again, and uh, this is not a really a new thing, but apparently it's on the uptick. So we're going to talk about that, and that'll lead to our tip of the week. And so let's get right to it. Let's dive in. So if you're a cord cutter like me, and you're trying, you've been trying to, you know, get rid of your cable service, get rid of your satellite service. They're just too expensive and bulky, and they're all the stupid extra fees for the boxes you have to rent and. Uh, all the little ways that nickel and dime you, we all got tired of that. And the, there's the bundle, so many things together that we don't need. So we've all been kind of turning to these new streaming services, these quote unquote, over the top services, which basically are internet cable companies, <laughs> let's face it. Uh, and that, you know, when they first came out, they were very affordable and I jumped on the bandwagon. I got a few of those myself and they started, you know, maybe 30, 35 bucks a month. Uh, and that would usually get you most of your local channels and, you know, like a good smattering of like the most, you know, the most important cable channels, sometimes with or without like ESPN. Sometimes that was kind of hard to get. But you know, I tried several. I tried PlayStation View. I uh, briefly tried, you know, Google Video. Was that the call? Uh, whatever, the, whatever Google streaming service is. I've, I've had Netflix forever. But it's not quite the same. Uh, these are more like, you know, cable company replacements where they're giving you multiple channels uh, that you're used to get on cable. But now the prices have gone through the roof. I mean, they're they've gotten right back to the point where it's basically the same as cable. They still bundle a whole bunch of stuff together that you don't want. And honestly, the service is still not as good as the old cable service with a dedicated DVR box. But anyway, okay. So Disney plus is the, is the latest in this, uh, you know, everyone's trying to do their own thing and this can't last forever. Cause we, you know, no one's going to want to buy 10 different services uh, to try to get all the content they used to get in one place. But anyway, Disney plus came along. It's actually, pretty cheap. It's only like seven bucks a month. Uh, you can get it cheaper if you buy it in bulk, you know, like I think a two-year contract or something. And Disney has since pulled all of its content from all the other services like Netflix and, and whatever, which Disney actually owns lots of different things you might not realize. They own uh, National Geographic, Pixar, you know, so Toy Story and all those movies are lots of great movies there. Star Wars they own and Marvel, which of course has got tons of movies. Uh, very popular. And so it's actually, you know, plus all the Disney archives, it's actually a pretty good service for seven bucks a month. Anyway, so it was really hyped and just started recently. And like on day one, a lot of people found that their accounts had been hacked. So let me just read briefly from this article from ZDNet. 
Hackers didn't waste any time and have started hijacking Disney Plus users' accounts hours after the service launched. Many of these accounts are now being offered for free on hacking forums or available for sale for prices varying from $3 to $11, a ZDNet investigation has discovered. The Disney Plus video streaming service launched this week, which at this point was November, I think November 12th. The service, although being available only in the U.S., Canada, and the Netherlands, has already amassed more than 10 million customers in its first 24 hours. The Disney Plus launch was marred by technical issues, many users reporting being unable to stream their favorite movies and shows. But hidden in the flood of complaints about technical issues was a smaller stream of users reporting losing access to their accounts. Many users reported that hackers were accessing their accounts, logging them out of all devices, and then changing the account's email and password, effectively taking over the account and locking the previous owner out. Two users who spoke with ZDNet on the condition we do not share their names admitted that they reused passwords. However, other users said online that they did not, and had used passwords unique for their Disney Plus accounts. This suggests in some cases that hackers gained access to accounts by using email and password combos leaked at other sites, while in other cases, the Disney Plus credentials might have been obtained from users infected with keylogging or info-stealing malware. Okay, so that may just be speculation. Obviously, in a couple of cases, they found out that it was from password reuse. So, you know, the first thing we get out of this is this is why you don't reuse passwords, the same password to multiple sites, and you think it's not that important. I don't care if someone, you know, gets into this or that account because it's not that important. But you know, in this case, you paid for the service, and all of a sudden, you're locked out of your own account. And the reason was because the Disney Plus password you use is your favorite password that you use for all your websites or too many of your websites, and in some other server breach, your password was was hacked, and now it's available on the web, and it's called credential stuffing. The hackers have gotten really good at this. They basically automate it at this point. They take these lists of usernames and passwords and just periodically go around the web and try logging into other places with those credentials and see if they can get in. So anyway, so don't reuse passwords. Get a password manager. Uh, I like LastPass. Uh, there are others, but uh, get a password manager, and then you should really not know any of your passwords. Make, you know, make crazy long, random, strong passwords using your password manager, and then the only password you need to remember is your master password. So you can spend all the time you want to make that a really great master password, and you just have to remember one. Uh, that is definitely the way to go. Um, the other thing I mentioned here, which we don't talk about too often, uh, is keylogging software. So the takeaway with that is, Whenever you use a public computer, something that's not yours, uh, and that would, you know, that might extend even to a friend's computer if you're visiting someone's house or whatever. But, you know, I'm typically thinking of things like hotel computers in the business center or even library computers. You know, obviously, sometimes you need to use those things. But when you do, I would just assume that anything you type in that keyboard will be recorded and used by a malicious actor, which means that you should not type in passwords. So don't log into websites using a public computer. Don't type in social security numbers. You might not want to type in email addresses, credit card numbers, all those kind of things. Those are not things you want to be doing on a public computer. Again, just assume that everything you do on that computer can be observed and is being recorded uh, for someone to look at later. Now, I can combine those two things. If you actually have a password manager, you can do some very clever things to work around this in emergency situations. If you just have to go to a cyber cafe or something to use a computer and you have to log into an account, you can actually create, and I suggest you do this, like in LastPass, you can create some one-time use passwords. Uh, you generate these passwords on the website, and then you print them and put them in your wallet. I wouldn't label what they are. 
You could even laminate them if you want or whatever it takes to protect them. Uh, keep them with you. And then if, if you have to, you can use these passwords to log into LastPass once. So you don't enter your master password. You would never, ever want to do that on a public machine. But if you were truly desperate and you needed to get into something in LastPass on a public computer, you would use one of these one-time passwords. It's kind of a long string of characters. Uh, it's kind of a pain to type in, but it only works once. So once you use it and you log in with that and you cross it off because it'll never be useful again, which also means that anybody who happened to see you use that password or record that password will find that it will not work for them. And then once you're in, it will auto, if you're using a plugin, it can auto fill these things in for you, which is not on a keyboard, so it couldn't be recorded. Um, or you could try cutting and pasting, which would not go onto the keyboard, but uh, that's still pretty risky because sometimes if there's malware on that computer, they can still see the contents of the clipboard. So you have to be careful with that as well. Anyway, don't do it unless you absolutely have to, but if you did, and that's one way you might get around it. All right, moving on to this massive data breach I just talked about. Um, I'll just read from this article from, from Mashable. Uh, the, the bottom line is that most of what was, was stolen was more kind of identity stuff and not really passwords and, and credit card numbers and whatever. But nevertheless, um, it was just huge. I'm, I, I'm kind of surprised it didn't make bigger news than it did. So let me read this uh, from this article from Mashable. Well, this is certainly not great. An unprotected database of more than a billion users' records from across the internet, including social media accounts, email addresses, and phone numbers, was discovered on an unidentified Elasticsearch server that could be accessed by anyone with the server's web address. Uh, I'll quickly say Elasticsearch is a, a company that makes a, a database, something that ingests a lot of data. Not really important, but I just wanted to let you know what that word meant. What's even weirder is, according to Bloomberg, no one is exactly sure how it got there. The discovery was made in October by, by cybersecurity expert Bob Diachenko and Vinny Troya. The four terabytes of data they found also included Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn profile information. All told, the server contained information on 4 billion user accounts and 650 million unique email addresses, affecting 1.2 billion people. But as Wired Magazine points out, though, it's important to keep in mind what this data does not include, things like passwords and credit card numbers. So at least there's that. Troya also told Wired that the server is no longer online and he reported its presence to the FBI. While it's unknown how the data got to be on this server, there are a few things Troya was able to uncover. First of all, it seems like the data came from multiple data sets, some of it from data broker People Data Labs, or PDL, which provides quote-unquote data enrichment. Second, the server the information was found on did not belong to PDL. Troya reports that PDL appears to use Amazon Web Services for their servers, while the mystery data-laden server was residing, again unprotected, on Google's cloud services. Troya and Sean Thorne, a co-founder of People Data Labs, both indicated to Wired that the data probably wasn't obtained via a breach of PDL, but may have been obtained legitimately by a customer who bought the data for data enrichment purposes and left it unprotected. Said Thorne, quote, the owner of this server likely used one of our enrichment products, along with a number of other data enrichment or licensing services. Once a customer receives data from us or any other data providers, the data is on their servers and the security is their responsibility, unquote. The scariest thing is, as Troya points out, is that if this really is just gross mismanagement of legitimately obtained data, there's little to be done in terms of holding anyone accountable for the breach. So there's a couple takeaways in that for me. So first of all, if you haven't realized it yet, your data is a huge, huge business. You know, this PDL company, People Data Labs, is just one of thousands, literally thousands of data brokers. In the U.S. alone, uh, 
I saw this figure a year ago, and I'm sure it's gone up, that uh, just as of a year ago, there were 2,500 to 4,000 data brokers operating in the United States alone. Uh, data is absolutely a huge deal, and people are making tons of money off of us <laughs> every day, and we have almost no transparency into what's going on there. I mean, have you ever heard of People Data Labs before? I certainly haven't. And the other thing is exactly what this last paragraph said, and that is these companies sell your data and they sell it in bulk. And so some, for quote unquote, enrichment purposes, I love those euphemisms. <laughs> enrichment basically means targeting ads, you know, finding ways to use that data to show you ads that hopefully you're interested in, but in a lot of cases also using that data to manipulate you into doing things you might not normally do, which we talked about on a recent podcast. So this data, and this is kind of like the Cambridge Analytica thing that uh, sort of these secondary and tertiary companies buy and rebuy all of this data and combine it into these massive data sets. And then they have the data. They've, they've got their own copy of this data. And then it's up to them to secure that data. And obviously in this case, somebody bought all this data and threw it up on a, a cloud server somewhere and neglected to password protect all this data. And it was just sitting there. The other thing, I, I can't imagine how Google and Amazon have not somehow forced all customers to lock all data. All data on these systems must be password encrypt, uh, protected and encrypted. I I can't imagine in this day and age, after all these data breaches, this is not the first time this has happened, that this is just not mandatory. But apparently it's not. So anyway, this data, you know, is while it may not have credit card information in it or passwords or that kind of thing, it's it's a huge data trove that can be used to manipulate you potentially or for identity theft or all sorts of other purposes. So the fact that we have this data at all is a problem. It's a liability. Data should be looked at as a liability, not not an asset. Because every piece of data you have on somebody else that that could cause harm if it gets loose is something you have to protect and it's a, it's a risk to you, your reputation and potentially illegal trouble if that gets loose and you were deemed to be negligent. All right, moving on. PayPal, which if you don't know by now, it's a payment service. It started a long time ago to go along with eBay. People were buying things on eBay and they, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't have an easy way to exchange money with another consumer somewhere. And there weren't really, you know, really ready credit card based services that people could use, um, you know, between each other. And so PayPal filled that gap and they, they allowed people to uh, send, basically send money back and forth to each other. And that grew into you know, having buyer and seller protections and some kind of an escrow setup, uh, all these kind of things that helped facilitate, you know, online auctions where you don't ever actually meet the person. Anyway, it's grown into this huge empire of, you know, for payment systems along with many others. Uh, and now uh, PayPal has decided to acquire this company called Honey for $4 billion. And Honey, if you haven't heard of them, uh, they started out at least as a plugin for your browser. You put this plugin in your browser, and whenever you go shopping to Amazon or places like that, it kind of keeps track of what you're looking at and the products you're looking at buying. And it notifies you and says, hey, I know you're looking to buy this product here, but did you know you can get it over there for less money? Or if you want to buy it here, you could get it cheaper because there's a coupon code I found somewhere else that you could use on this and, uh, and get a discount on this. You know, which is obviously very handy and it can save you a lot of money if, if it works right. But, you know, also you got to realize that this this browser plugin by its very nature and to do what it needs to do is watching everything you do on the web and particularly keeping track of everything you even consider buying 
Um, and of course, you know, if you use their codes or use their links, then it knows that you're uh, going to buy something and it probably can tell when you've actually purchased it and it's snarfing up all that data. So anyway, let's read this article from TechCrunch about uh, this deal. PayPal announced today it has agreed to acquire Honey Science Corporation, the makers of a deal-finding browser add-on and mobile application for $4 billion, mostly cash. The acquisition, which is PayPal's largest to date, will give the payments giant a foothold earlier in the customer's shopping journey. Instead of only competing on the checkout page against credit cards or Apple Pay, for example, PayPal will leap ahead to become a part of the deal discovery process as well. Currently, Honey's 17 million monthly active users take advantage of its suite of money-saving tools to track prices, get alerts, make lists, browse offers, and participate in Ebates-like rewards program called Honey Gold. Its users tend to be younger millennial shoppers, both male and female. PayPal aims to add Honey's technologies to its own product line, expanding its reach to PayPal's 300 million users. Quote, what's exciting is that we can take the functionality Honey now offers, which is product discovery, price tracking, offers, and loyalty, and build that into, into the PayPal and Venmo experiences, unquote. Uh, and that was from uh, PayPal's Senior Vice President of Global Consumer Products and Technology. In addition, PayPal's network of 24 million merchant partners will gain the ability to offer targeted and more personalized promotions to consumers as a means of acquiring new business and driving increased sales. So really, it's that last paragraph that that I want you to pay attention to. It's not, you know, not surprises that there's these big, you know, dot-com mergers going on. But probably the biggest reason for this buyout, or one of the biggest reasons for this buyout, is not just, you know, that it makes sense to marry these two things together, a payment system with a deal-finding system, but also the users. <laughs> if you do the math, what, you know, what is that user data worth to PayPal? Well, if you take $4 billion and divide that by 17 million, quote-unquote, monthly active users, unquote, that's $235 a person. Now, in uh, 2014, when Facebook bought WhatsApp for $19 billion, uh, that was for 450 million users, so that was actually a bargain basement price of $42 per customer. So anyway, my, my point is... Two, actually. One, that your data is extremely valuable and there are companies buying it left and right. Um, and second, we need to be careful who we trust our data to because a lot of times these companies end up getting bought out by somebody else. And while you would hope that the privacy policies would transfer to the new company, it's not always the case. All right, next up. If you are an Avast or AVG uh, antivirus software customer, you definitely want to listen up to this. And honestly, what I'll make it applicable to everybody here in, in a second, but let's start with that. So the Hacker News had this article uh, recently that I'm going to read a little bit from here, and it's uh, pretty disturbing. If your Firefox or Chrome browser has any of the below-listed four extensions offered by Avast and its subsidiary, AVG, installed, you should disable or remove them as soon as possible. They are Avast Online Security, AVG Online Security, Avast Safe Price, or AVG Safe Price. So why should you remove these? Because these four widely installed browser extensions have been caught collecting a lot more data on its millions of users than they were intended to, including your detailed browsing history. Most of you might not even remember downloading and installing these extensions on your web browser, and that's likely because when users install AVG or Avast antivirus on their PCs, the software automatically installs their respective add-ons on the user's browsers. 
Both online security extensions have been designed to warn users when they visit a malicious or phishing website, whereas safe price extensions help online shoppers learn about the best offers, price comparisons, travel deals, and discount coupons from various sites, which, by the way, sounds a lot like honey, if you recall. The malicious behavior of Avast and AV extensions was discovered almost a month ago by Vladimir Pallant, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, who detailed how the extensions are sending a large amount of data about users' browsing habits to the company's servers, quote, far beyond what's necessary for the extension to function, unquote. What user's data is being sent to Avast? The full URL of the page you were on, including query part and anchor data, in other words, the entire line of the, in the address bar of your browser, which can often contain juicy bits of, uh, of information. A unique user identifier generated by the extension for tracking, page title, referrer URL, which is, in other words, what page you came from, how you landed on a page, for example, by entering the address directly, using a bookmark, or clicking a link, a value that tells whether you visited a page before, your country code, browser name and its exact version number, your operating system and its exact version number. This guy goes on to say, quote, tracking tab and window identifiers as well as your actions allows Avast to create a nearly precise reconstruction of your browsing behavior. How many tabs do you have open? What websites do you visit and when? How much time do you spend reading, watching the contents? What do you click there and when do you switch to another tab? All that is connected to a number of attributes allowing Avast to recognize you reliably, even a unique user identifier, unquote. Over this weekend, Palant reported his findings to both the browser makers, Mozilla and Google, of which Mozilla took immediate action by temporarily removing the extensions from its Firefox add-on store within 24 hours until Avast resolves the issue. But since Mozilla didn't blacklist the extensions altogether or automatically remove them from users' browsers, it should be noted that these extensions would remain active for users and continue to spy on them. On the other hand, all four extensions are still available on the Google Chrome Web Store, but Palant believes that they will be removed by the tech giant after, quote, considerable news coverage, unquote. So that being said, I didn't see a whole lot of coverage on this, so, you know, I'm not sure how much Google, how much, uh, you know, heat Google's taking over this, I'm leaving those in, the, in their uh, app store. But anyway, so the bottom line, again, is that these companies are trying to monetize you. Even though you're already paying them money, that's not good enough anymore. So they're either using that money, you know, using the, the data uh, that they're gathering on you and selling to offset their price and maybe allow them to have lower prices, or they're just plain old double dipping and they're just finding more ways to, you know, get money out of you besides the original payment you gave them. Now they're making money off your data as well. And, you know, while I'm sure that some of the information they're collecting is useful for them in terms of protecting you and, and necessary in some cases for them to protect you from bad websites and things like that, they're obviously using using it for way more than that. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about in my best and worst gifts when I was talking about VPN providers as well and antivirus companies. It's, you know, we hire these companies to protect us in one way or another, either protect our security or protect our privacy or both. And in order for them to do that properly, in a lot of cases, they need to know everything about you. They need to get all up in your devices, all into your computer stuff. They need to get their fingers into everything. And that gives them unique access and allows them to do other things, which, you know, you may not know that they're doing, in particular, gathering your data. When I had Richard Stokes on the program, and we were talking about his Winston privacy box. And when he was in the ad tech industry, he, in the process of making his Winston box, he had learned, and he wouldn't disclose the name, uh, of a VPN company who used its VPN products to 
snarf up as much data about the user as possible. And again, think about this. This, this is an application that you knowingly, willingly installed on your computer or perhaps on a mobile device. And by doing so, probably granted it almost infinite permissions to do whatever it needed to on your device. You know, think about it. I made this analogy before. It's like hiring a bodyguard, right? It, or, you know, this person you're going to trust with your life. And therefore, they need to be with you always, see everything you do, hear everything you do, know where you go. Uh, and that that's a lot of, you know, important information. And, and of course, when you hire a bodyguard, they probably, you know, sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, as part of their contract and are sworn to secrecy, but not true with a, with a lot of these software products that we install. So anyway, take that to heart. Think about that. All right, last story, and then this will run into our tip of the week. Uh, and this is about how identity thieves are turning back to snail mail, your regular old post office letters, physical letters, to use information found there to steal your identity and commit other sorts of financial crimes. So let me read this article from ThreatPost. Researchers at Flashpoint said they are monitoring hacker forums where criminals are swapping tips on a growing ID theft and financial crimes area, which entails abusing the United States Postal Service. The scam involves making bogus change of address and mail forwarding requests on behalf of the unsuspecting victims. The abuse of USPS mail forwarding could facilitate credit card fraud and numerous forms of identity theft, wrote Abigail Showman, a researcher from Flashpoint. She warns that, similar to a phishing or BEC attack, and I actually skipped a part where they define that BEC is a business email compromise attack. So similar to a phishing or BEC attack, a snail mail forwarding scam can do just as much harm. Threats range from obtaining a line of credit on an unsuspecting victim's behalf, insurance fraud and intercepting a tax return, to hijacking an existing financial account and synthetic ID theft. Showman says, quote, Flashpoint analysts have identified numerous discussions on closed and invite-only online communities where threat actors advertise methods and paid services that are earmarked for fraud. Many of these individuals are careful to shield their location, but the majority of these, of these discussions are about the U.S. Postal Service with a limited number of references to the United Kingdom's Royal Mail, unquote. Showman acknowledged that generic scams tied to forwarding mail aren't new. However, she said a laser focus by cybercriminals on identity theft and financial crimes online has piqued interest among a new breed of criminals willing to also dabble in offline crimes. An example of such an attack surfaced last week in a Dear John article in the New York Post. A Florida victim said their email, and I think they just mean mail here, said their mail had been surreptitiously forwarded to Philadelphia. Quote, the thieves got a checking account statement and ordered new checks sent to their address. They applied for credit cards and other charge accounts, unquote, wrote the victim in the New York Post. According to the report, uh, when FJ, who's the, the, those are the, the initials of the person who posted the article, sought assistance for the United States Postal Service Office of the Inspector General, the response was unsatisfactory. Quote, the Inspector General's office in Washington, D.C. was useless. It had zero interest in investigating, let alone prosecuting, FJ wrote. The U.S. Postal Inspection Service told ThreatPost it has a number of safeguards in place to prevent this type of incident. Quote, similar to other companies, the Postal Service's Information Security Program and our federal law enforcement arm, the Postal Inspection Service, use industry best practices and technology solutions to protect our customers, unquote. It added that it does not publicly discuss security protocols in an effort to preserve their effectiveness and to avoid compromise. In an interview with ThreatPost, Showman said mail forwarding fraud is either perpetrated online via forms available on USPS.com or physically at a post office. 
Quote, in both cases, following the mail forwarding permanent change of address, the UPS sends a confirmation to the original address. If individuals suspect that this change was made fraudulently, they can contact the USPS before the change goes into effect, unquote. Online, she noted, individuals must create an account and provide contact information as well as pay a nominal fee when conducting a change of address. When threat posts walked through the process, one of the safeguards was ensuring that the billing address on the credit card used to pay the fee matched the original address of the mail to be forwarded. Flashpoint recommends opting for paperless versions of bank statements and other official documents to reduce the odds of being hit by an attack. And Showman says again here, individuals should also monitor their credit report for unusual activity that may indicate a threat actor has fraudulently opened a credit line, unquote. And I would go further and say that, as I've said many times before, uh, that you should just go ahead and freeze your credit. It's free. Do it on all three credit bureaus. And uh, that will that would prevent this from happening. And finally, that says, one, you know, one obvious tip is if you suddenly stop getting mail, give the UPS a call and ask why. All right, so that's going to lead to my tip of the week, and it's kind of a it's kind of a mixture of ideas uh, that that got me thinking once I read this article. But for the UPS, um, I want to talk about one interesting service that you may not have heard of that is both uh, interesting and potentially good for your own security, but also troubling if someone else managed to create an account in your name and use it against you. And that is called uh, they have this program called Informed Delivery, and what this basically allows you to do is you can, if you set up your USPS account online and sign up for informed delivery, you can go online and see what mail you have received and are about to receive. Uh, it goes back a, uh, just a week, I think, from what I can tell. And I, I've signed up for this. I've done it myself. And it's really, it's, <laughs> it's neat, but it's also kind of creepy, right? So I can log in online and I can see a scanned image of the outside of every letter and package that, that I have received in in the last week or is coming in the mail today because they scan it before they deliver it so I can see what's actually destined for my mailbox today. So obviously, if you know, if you're traveling and you haven't stopped your mail for some stupid reason or maybe you have a house sitter and you still want to kind of keep track of what mail you've been receiving while you're away, yeah, that's kind of neat. And theoretically also, you could, you know, if you're if you never got something you expected that you were supposed to get, you could go back and look and see if it was scanned and say, okay, well, they said they were going to deliver, but they didn't. In fact, there's a little checkbox underneath every one of these scans that says, I did not receive this. Now, this isn't available everywhere. You'll have to check your address. Uh, you'd have to go to informeddelivery.usps.com. You know, you could try to sign up there and you'll find out whether your address is covered. And I would think that most major, uh, most major cities would have this. To do this, of course, you need to sign up for a free user account at uh, usps.com. Uh, and that's really, really what I'm actually going to recommend you do. And that's going to lead into a couple other topics is there are a lot of these government-based programs or other ones, like for instance, like with your wireless character, there are things that, sorry, wireless carrier that you could do proactively that, it, uh, that if you don't do, someone else might do in your name and basically steal something from you. So anyway, um, USPS.com, if you sign up for the free account there, this will allow you to sign up for this informed delivery. And when they're signing up for this thing, uh, they will, you know, supposedly try to validate who you are uh, using four of these so-called knowledge-based authentication or KBA questions. Now, most of the, if you've seen this before, most of these things come from like your credit report, which, as we also know, many of which were hacked and stolen uh, years ago with the Equifax breach. So they're really, honestly, not terribly secure. And also, you know, a lot of the information that's in some of these questions, you know, like previous addresses and where, you know, previous 
maybe loans or things like that can be kind of pieced together or inferred from data you can find rel- you know, relatively easily on the web. You know, on Facebook, you have people kind of overshare on some of that information on Zillow, uh, which tracks housing prices in, uh, in, in your area and housing uh, sales history. And then some other of the really creepy you know, online personal sites like uh, My Life or Spokio, uh, which I'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, a lot of this, you know, these knowledge-based questions the answers to those questions could be picked up other places. So the bottom line here is if you go and sign up for this account now, even if you don't plan to use it, you can sign up, go through these questions, put a really good password on it. And then you have basically spoken for your account. Even if you use it for nothing else, you know that no one else can get into it either as provided, of course, you use a good password and that that password isn't reused other places. And this applies to other things as well, especially other government services. So I would also recommend you do the same thing with the IRS.gov and the Social Security Administration. Uh, I've heard of identity theft uh, things in both those cases where people had not gone ahead and created their account and someone else came along and created it for them in their name. And, you know, either perhaps put together a tax return in their name and claimed a huge refund and had it sent, had that check sent somewhere else. And then when you go to file your taxes, it says you've already filed your taxes. And then, but then you know you're in trouble. And same for the Social Security Administration. There's a lot of information that people could get if they could, you know, if they can get through the the questions and the, and get through the kind of weak authentication mechanisms on some of these uh, governmental accounts, they can sign up for an account in your name and then get up to all sorts of mischief. So again, bottom line, what I'm saying is, uh, I would go and make sure you sign up, even if you don't plan to use these accounts for anything else. Go sign up for them so that you are sure that you have created and control these very important accounts. The other thing you can do, because uh, we've talked about SIM jacking on this uh, program before, which basically allows someone to kind of clone your phone and take over your phone, which would allow them to get your text messages and phone calls and things like that, is to go to your wireless carrier, log into your account with your wireless carrier, AT&T, Verizon, you know, Sprint, T-Mobile, Orange, wherever you live. Um, and many of them now have the ability to set a PIN, a personal identification number. Uh, which is an extra layer of security. It's not great, but it's better than nothing uh, that should prevent any major changes from happening on your account or anything being done uh, to your account, like getting a new phone or getting a new SIM card without knowing this special uh, this special PIN. Now, of course, the other thing I'll draw your attention to is, <laughs> is, is realize that the U.S. Postal Service and probably the you know other services as well around the world are scanning all of your letters. They have been doing this for a while. So, you know, for instance, if there was ever a subpoena or a warrant or I don't know, maybe less as for, I don't know, or a hack, you know, somewhere there's a list with pictures of, of all the mail you've ever received. So we can only hope that they are doing, uh, taking extraordinary measures to keep that safe and away from people who might abuse that information. And one last depressing thing I'll, th- I'll throw at you, uh, is check out some of these you know, people look up sites because there's, there are many of them now. And a lot of them are pulling this information from, you know, just public records. Uh, but it, you know, back in the day, of course, you know, to get these public records, you would have to physically show up at a County clerk's office and, you know, ask them to look up a particular thing. And they would hand, you know, they would give you a physical document that you might be able to scan. But now that all these data, data records have been digitized. And I think a lot of these, you know, county clerk's offices, whatever, have probably sold this information to make more money. And now it's all available digitally. And so these services can now get all this information without having to physically be present, which makes it a whole lot easier. 
So some of these services like uh, My Life, just like it sounds, M Y L I F E. If you go to if you search on My Life and go to their website or Spokio, which S P O K E O, and there are others. There's uh, white pages and some other ones you could look up online. Uh, and search for yourself and just see what they find. I found my information on my life uh, a year or two ago and was really super creeped out about what was there. Because uh, a lot of cases, they, you know, you have to pay to get the full information, but they kind of tease what information they have on you. And they show you some of it. So they'll show you your age, they'll show you your middle name, they'll show you your current location, they'll show previous, previous cities where you've lived, and they will show relatives or associates. And they'll, other people's names are basically associated with yours. And the one I found in my life was a little bit, little bit too on point. There was, there were some errors, but nevertheless, so I, I, I wrote them. They didn't reply back. Where I actually, I wrote them and said, please delete my data. And it was still there. I finally worked through the better business bureau and went back and forth and back and forth. And finally they, they, they said they removed it permanently. Um, and I have not found my information back on that site again, but all, there's so many other sites that's impossible to, 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 to get them all. And I just went to Spokio just to find out what they had on me. And it's, it's very similar. They had, my full name, including my middle name. They knew my age, uh, where I lived. They had several associates of mine, which in this case were almost all wrong, which was kind of strange. Um, but nevertheless, it's just creepy uh, what all data is out there and how it's being uh, sold without our without our consent. So there you go. There's my tip of the week, uh, kind of all over the place, but a lot of different things you can, you can act on there that I recommend that you do. Uh, and that wraps up our news for the week. All right. Thanks for hanging in there. Another great news show. Lots of information there. I will have some interviews coming up. Like I said, it just really kind of depends on getting people's schedules together. Um, in the holidays, it's always kind of tricky. So hopefully we'll get some of those before Christmas. If not, we'll just have some more news shows. If you haven't already, definitely go back and check out my episode with the best and worst gifts for 2019. As you're doing your shopping this year, you'll definitely want to keep in mind security and privacy. And just spoiler alert, DNA tests were the worst. If you don't want to look, go back and listen to the episode, or if you already have, you still might want to check out my blog entry on the same topic. Just go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. It's one of the top entries there. And of course, with Christmas coming up, I you know would be remiss if I didn't at least humbly suggest that you consider giving uh, a copy of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons to some of your loved ones. And of course, it would make a great accompaniment if you're already giving them a computer or some other sort of uh, IoT or electronic device. So with the holidays approaching, you know, maybe I'll do a couple specials in there somewhere. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do like a New Year's resolution show or something like that. We'll see. But uh, the holidays are coming, so hopefully everyone's uh, staying safe out there. Be extra special careful. There's a lot of scams this time of year, so keep your radar on and your, your guard up. And help others as well. It's the, it's the time to look out for each other. All right, that'll do it. Take care, everybody. And until next week, don't get caught with your garbage down.